Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to the McClifford Podcast the Irish Examiner. Now, in November 1983, exactly 40 years ago, supermarket executive Don Tidy was kidnapped by the provisional IRA in front of his young children during the school run. Uh, Don Tidy was actually a widower at the time. His wife had died a few years earlier. Anyway, 23 days later, he was found in a forest in Leitrim and during his rescue, two members of the security forces, Garda recruit Gary Sheehan and Army Private Paddy Kelly, were both murdered in a shootout with the kidnappers. There was profound shock across the southern state at the development, particularly with the death of two young men. It brought home to many the ruthless nature of the provost, which for the greater part had operated in the northern state, certainly when it came to inflicting any kind of um, violence to this extent. A new book written by journalists Tommy Conlon and Ronan McGreevy recounts what was a seminal event in the South during the Northern Trouble. It also examines the kind of support that existed for the Provisional IRA in the South, particularly in County Leitrim, where the, the kidnappers were hiding out and where both authors hail from. Ronan and Tommy are very welcome. Thanks, Mick. Thanks, Mick. Could we start there? Tommy, would you set the scene for us? Don Tidy, he was a supermarket executive, a native of England, living in Wicklow, and he uh, he was kidnapped on this morning. How exactly did it come about? Yes, uh, November the 24th, 1983. Don Tidy is leaving his home after eight in the morning, bringing his daughter to school. And there's a reason he is bringing his daughter to school is because Don Tidy, which it was one of the uh, uh, neglected or unknown facets of the crisis at the time, was that Don Tidy in 1983 was a widower. He was the sole parent to his three children uh, because his wife had died from leukemia in 1980. So he was bringing his daughter, Susan, to school. She was uh, 13 at the time. And... uh, his son was following behind Alice in his car and uh, there was a bogus police checkpoint 100 yards from his home or in the, at the foot of the Dublin mountains. Uh, he stopped the car. Uh, the policeman walked over. Don Tidy rolled down the window. Are you Don Tidy? Yes, I am. And the uh, bogus policeman produced uh, a gun from an inside pocket and pointed it at Don Tidy and dragged him out of the car. Uh, They beat him with uh, rifle butts and they threw him into the back of another car and they fled the scene immediately. Okay, and as we know, and as was known fairly quickly, this was the work of the Provisional IRA. Ronan, kidnapping, I suppose, I don't know, in, in some facets today anyway, it doesn't seem like the most, I don't know, intelligent way of going about fundraising generally, but... It was something that the provost had engaged in and they had some success. Ben Dunn, for instance, I don't know, was it before or after this kidnapping? But there's always been serious speculation that a ransom was paid after he was kidnapped. Yeah, well, there was uh, the IRA, among its uh, many crimes, was engaging in kidnapping. In 1972, we kidnapped uh, 
Thomas Niedermeyer, um, who was the uh, manager of the Grundig factory in Belfast, and he his body was found a few days later in Wasteland and outside Belfast, and there was a cascade of, of, of intergenerational trauma with that. His wife and two daughters took their lives, as did um, one of his son-in-laws. And then there was the famous instance of Thierry de Herman, 1975, who was kidnapped by Marion Coyle and Eddie Gallagher. And then you mentioned uh, Ben Dunn. Ben Dunn was kidnapped in 1981 by the provost. Ben Dunn himself says that he, he thinks a, a ransom was paid, but it was paid by his father, uh, Ben Dunn Sr., who uh, had never d- divulged the sum of money involved, but uh, he's pretty sure that um, a sum of money was paid. And then in 1983, the provost were running short of money um, their capacity to uh, carry out armed robberies was being curtailed by uh, extra security. So they um, set upon this wheeze that they would kidnap a high worth individual and uh, uh, demand a huge sum of money for uh, that person's release, and therefore they would get it would it, it would obviate the the risk that would be in in armed robberies. Um, they kidnapped Shergar in February 1983, the, the Wonder Horse who had won the the Derby, the Epsom Derby and the Irish Derby. But uh, that turned out to be a disaster, as did the attempt to kidnap in a Galen Weston of the Anglo-Canadian uh, family, the Westons, in, in August 1983. So it was third time unlucky as far as the provosts were concerned when they kidnapped Don Tidy. Yeah, it is actually, there's a fair history of it over that 10 or 15 years. No, so they took Mr Tidy, um... There was naturally a, a national manhunt. And eventually, uh, just over three weeks, I think it was, they narrowed it down to County Leitrim. And in the book, you have it recorded that the information that led them to that two informers you mentioned, Sean O'Callaghan, well-known informer he was with the IRA at the time, and there's some speculation as to whether or not he was as prominent within the organisation as he has always claimed, although he was obviously quite intelligent man. And the other, of course, was Freddie Scappatici, steak knife. Um, is it tied down that they were the source of the information, or is that a general feeling on the basis that they were both high-profile informers? There's a lot of different disparate information that brought the uh, Gardaí to Leitrim. There was also the fact that at the when Don Tidy was kidnapped, he was uh, there was a, he was handed over to another gang uh, in outside uh, Selbridge in County Kildare. Um, Gardaí uh, realised that one of the cars that was used was owned by a local Republican. That Republican was interrogated and said Leitrim. So Leitrim is a is a a big county with a small population, so to speak. So. Um, they, they started looking in North Leitrim uh, along the border with County Fermanagh, but eventually surveillance of the local um, Republicans in Leitrim, most notably John John McGurl, who was the Vice President of Sinn Féin at the time and also a local county councillor, um, and some of his um, cohort of, of followers, uh, brought them, they, they were able to narrow the search to an area outside Ballinamore, and then once they had monitored John Joe McGurl's uh, movements and also had tracked a phone call he had made to a senior Republican in the north, um, they were able to uh, zero in on the sort of general hinterland, which is about five miles outside Ballinamore. And eventually they stumbled across the hideout uh, on, uh, on the afternoon of the 16th of December 1983. Yeah, and, and that was, uh, I, I think they had been searching for a day or two at that stage, very rough terrain in some ways, pretty remote. Um, and they had they had drafted in a lot 
of uh, they drafted in the army, and then the idea of drafting in the trainees from Templemore Garda trainees, and you've touched on this and. There was some criticism, even though I, I note that one of the senior detectives um, that, that she interviewed uh, suggested he, he didn't accept the criticism. But there was some criticism that they went to Templemore to bring in recruits who wouldn't yet be fully trained to take on what even even people knew prior to the, the, the murders that happened. These were pretty dangerous individuals. Well, it became a major subject of conversation and debate in the immediate aftermath of the killings, uh, Mick, for the simple reason that one of the victims was indeed a Garda recruit, Gary Sheehan. And the country was in a sort of state of uh, national shock and and anguish over the fact that a young guard and an Irish soldier had been shot dead by terrorists. In and um, that alone, I think, out of that out of, out of that welter of grief and emotion, uh, of course, people there were recriminations. What was a, a, a young, guard, inexperienced guard or recruit doing there? But there are plausible arguments for it, uh, as we understand it. Not least the fact that they. The, um, the search, they needed as much, literally, as many boots on the ground as they could get between guards, soldiers. There was an enormous amount it's of terrain. 300 ter- square miles in total. 300 square miles of terrain. Yeah. And that was the first thing. And some of the uh, guardy we spoke to said that among the best, maybe the best uh, searchers on that manhunt across that were the guard or recruits because of their physical fitness and their enthusiasm. And, um, and that they actually were very useful in, in the search operation. And um, I think Michael Noonan, who was Minister for Justice at the time, subsequently pointed out in the doll anyway, that the other victim, Patrick Kelly, was a 36-year-old, a very experienced soldier who he was armed on the day. And Paddy Kelly had done three stints in the Lebanon. And uh, so all of, that, all of that experience, military experience, didn't spare uh, Patrick Kelly either. Very true, very good point. And the opening of the book is fascinating because you go straight to the actual uh, confrontation when the security services came upon the kidnappers in a very remote area and what subsequently happened. Um, The other thing that leaps out in terms of that whole narrative, which is really captivating, I say, and a subsequent one in nearby County Mayo, where it seems the kidnappers got away again when the net was closing on them. It was a successful operation to locate them, but I think a lot of questions could be raised about the manner in which they got away, not once, but twice after that. Uh, absolutely. And this was, um, I mean, it was a dark night of the soul in many ways for Angar the Shia Khanna, because at that stage they were also searching for Dominic Mad Dog McGlinchey, who had tied up Gardy as well. So there was there was a there was question marks over whether they were able to uh, deal with the threat of republican subversion uh, of the state. In terms of uh, Dorada Wood, I guess it's easy in retrospect to say how could they have got away from this so-called ring of steel. But actually, when you think about the fact that they were uh, firing automatic weapons at Gardaí and so on, had killed two people and injured another one. They they use just brute force to get away. Use 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 the power of the machine gun to get away from them. Claire Morris was an absolute farce. So, to just to bring you up to date on how Claire Morris happened, uh, there were four or maybe five kidnappers involved. One of them uh, who was local to the area made his way across Schlieven and 
Uh, two others went in the direction of uh, North Longford, so they went east of the kidnap site. Um, the other two, two others were brought by a guy called Francis McGurl, who had been earlier acquitted of the uh, assassination of, of uh, Mountbatten. Uh, brought them to um, brought them through Jumshambo and Sligo into Mayo on the night of the twentieth of December uh, in at Ballycroy, which is in North Mayo. Um, they were stopped by a guard of patrol. Um, they uh, held up the guardy and tied them up and took their car and then drove on to a house in Clare Morris. Once again, there was an opportunity to apprehend the the murderers of of Kelly and Sheehan, and guardy surrounded the house. But unfortunately, um, as a, 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 an officer discharged his his weapon at the back of the house, they all rushed around to the back, and the um, the kidnappers uh, uh, rushed out the front, or, or uh, jumped into a, a field and, and and basically disappeared, and have disappeared ever since. Yeah, it was. I mean, they, they were obviously highly trained. These kidnappers and, and a couple of the names that are suspected one Bick McFarland went on trial he was one of a very senior IRA operative who broke out of the maze I think he was ultimately acquitted but there's always been a suspicion that he may well have been involved and there were others there as well and just before leaving the, the actual kidnapping itself and the fallout and particularly the murder of those two young men there's a f- very interesting chapter in the book where you go into the fallout not just for their immediate family, but their subsequent, their children as they grew into adults. And I think you mentioned the phrase earlier, Tommy, intergenerational trauma. You can really see that in the kind of misfortune and, and uh, the things that befell those two families as a result of, of losing their loved one there. That's right, Mick. Um, Patrick Kelly's wife, Katrina, um, mother of four, she gets the devastating news. Uh, senior senior uh, army officers and guardy arrive at their home in Moat, knock on the door, and are and give her the news that will change her life profoundly and that of her children. Um, uh, the oldest boy uh, was uh, nine. The youngest was uh, ten or eleven weeks. Andrew and uh, he told us that he he doesn't have a photograph of him and his dad. Uh, he, he, it just doesn't exist it hadn't been a photo of him and his dad hadn't been taken by the time he lost his father and um, Katrina was as, as the boys would testify uh, was just profoundly shattered uh, grief stricken plumbed into the depths of depression and that went on for years and years and years and um, um, a sort of uh, it was compounded then by uh, a sort of, uh, an apparent knight in shining armour, uh, a former soldier himself who had uh, worked with Patrick Kelly in costume barracks at Lone, befriending her, beginning a relationship with her, and uh, ultimately uh, a few years later deciding that the, sh- the best thing to do would be to uproot the family and move to London. And um, her, uh, Katrina's sons, uh, now themselves adults, would say that it was his form of exercising control and deepening his control, isolate them from uh, everyone they knew in Moat and bring them to this enormous large housing estate in London where they lived for many years in, uh, in really, really sad and, uh, sad and distressing circumstances, Mick. And also, can I just say, Mick, that uh, David Kelly... Um, the oldest son came down to Balnamore, I think only for the second time when we launched a book there. And he was talking about 
the fact that basically as a result of their father they lost everything they lost their father they lost um, their country they lost their friends they lost the community that they grew up in and so on and um, he also believes that uh, his mother died very young at the age of 57 from an aneurysm and she, he believes that, that she was as much a victim of the troubles as, as, as the 3,700 other people that were, that were murdered during that time period. Yeah, that's a very good point, actually, because that figure of 3,700 is used, but then there are others, and, and this, this is an obvious example of people who, went, who didn't necessarily die in an incident, but their lives cruelly cut short as a result of the fallout. There was a lot of that. You mentioned David Kelly, who was... Patrick Kelly's son. People may remember him, and uh, I thought it was really striking. Incident was during the twenty eleven presidential election. He confronted Martin McGuinness, who was a candidate at that election. Um, I don't know it was Nat Lone or somewhere in the Midlands over his father's death and his allegation that McGuinness would have known who was involved and that he would have had information. That was really striking at the time, I think. It was very cathartic, uh, Michael, for David to do that. This is Martin McGuinness obviously participated in the 2011 uh, presidential campaign. Um, he was one of the early favourites, actually, but uh, he was effectively ambushed by... Uh, David Kelly uh, in the, uh, in the at a shopping centre in Atlone. David Kelly said to him, you know the killers of my father. You were on the army council at the time. You need to get those people to hand them over to Gardaí. Of course, Martin McGuinness tried to bluster his way out of it, um, but it was enormously damaging to his campaign. And it actually started, set off a cascade of, um, of recrimination against Martin McGuinness because... If you recall, um, the President of Ireland is also effectively the Commander-in-Chief of the Irish Defence Forces and here is the son of a, a man of a member of the Irish Defence Forces who was murdered by a, a, an organisation that Martin McGuinness was involved in, confronting Martin McGuinness. And of course, a lot of people came out of the woodwork after that. Anne McCabe, whose, whose husband Jerry had been murdered by the Provost in 1996, the brother of Frank Hand. Frank Hand was murdered by the Provost in 1984 so many others came out of the woodwork and then there was a famous scene uh, 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 on a, a Vincent Brown uh, election uh, election debate program when he pulled out eight separate books which suggested that Martin McGuinness uh, was a member of, of the IRA long after he claimed he had left so it was immensely damaging to to the uh, campaign of Martin McGuinness but it also showed as well uh, a factor which has really been overlooked in the Troubles is the amount of people in the South who have suffered as a result of what happened during the Troubles. Absolutely, and in, in a similar vein, this defence that's put out, and increasingly, I find, in recent years, where there, if you ask me, there's a concerted attempt to rewrite history when they, they try and project the provisional IRA as having been over 25 years defenders of the nationalist community, and no more than, as you point out, Ron, and people in the South who suffered... They murdered an awful lot of people in the nationalist community as well, um, something like 340 or 50 individuals. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. On a similar note, and we're back in Leitrim, where both of you are, are, are natives of, I have to say, and... Maybe it's ignorance on my part. In terms of border counties, I'd all often thought in terms of um, Loud in particular and Dundalk and Kevin Monnan to a lesser extent. But the extent of um, a presence and a certain support, whether or not it was it was very large or whether it was just very loud. But Leitrim, I, I, I was fascinated to, to, to read detail about that and in particular the individual you mentioned him already John Joe McGurl he was a very prominent figure there in Leitrim he was Mick I mean by, by 1983 John Joe McGurl is vice president of Sinn Féin he's a Leitrim county councillor he's been on the county council for many years and uh, he's also a founder member of the provisional IRA and um, uh, and uh, there, there certainly was uh, uh, some degree of sympathy, support for sort of uh, Sinn Féin IRA, mainly mainly in, in the rural hinterland, but but also also only in patches of the uh, sort of rural hinterland. And uh, does we try a, a, a bit of a socio-economic analysis of it and uh, what's going on behind it? Because rural poverty was real. The land was terrible, and um, there was a sense. I mean, among among, I suppose among would have been a sense among people in in some patches of rural Leitrim that they had been neglected and abandoned by the state. And you know yourself, and when a vacuum, a sort of a vacuum like that, uh, you know, comes along, it, can, it tends to be filled. But you'd, you'd have to emphasise if, if, if the support. There would have been maybe more wider residual sort of sympathy or nostalgia uh, for Sinn Féin or, uh, or, the, or an aspiration towards 32 County or get the Brits out of Northern Ireland. And I'm not too sure how many of those would travel the whole way along the spectrum to, to condoning uh, the murder of a soldier and a, and a policeman, you know. Uh, there's something there in the, uh, along that spectrum. I should add, Mick, if I may, Ballamore itself, and we make this point in the book, uh, it was the antithesis of Sinn Féin support. We, the town produced a TD uh, over three generations uh, from the same family, the Reynolds family, uh, from 1927 to 1997, uh, the Reynolds, Paddy Reynolds, Mary Reynolds, Patcho Reynolds, Gerald Reynolds, Fine Gael, Common and Gael, uh, the Law and Order Party. And uh, the Reynoldses, between them, were, were returned in 15 general elections. John J. McGarrell was returned once in one general election ever. So... It's complicated, Mick. You also mentioned Balnamore and elsewhere. And I, I, again, it was interesting. And younger people, I think, won't um, may not appreciate. It. I, I have a recollection of myself in various parts, but during the hunger strikes, in particular, and certain intimidation among shopkeepers that they were obliged to either shut the doors or, or fly black flags. All of that was going on there as well. Yeah, I remember one day in 1981, my my late father. Uh, we had a small sort of factory, woodwork, timber factory, woodwork. Uh, 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 joinery works at the back of her house and uh, I remember my one day uh, uh, for something that stands in my mind my father kind of wandering around the yard 
uh, not known really what to do because uh, the factory had been closed down for the day at the uh, request uh, or maybe on the orders of uh, the local Sinn Féin IRA zealots uh, who went round to every business, shop, pub in the town and asked, stroke, warned people to close down the uh, for the funeral of one of the hunger strikers, maybe it was the first one uh, for Bobby Sands, I'm not too sure which of them, and to hang out black flags. And by and large, overwhelmingly, uh, people conformed. And um, it was interesting in 1983 then, um, uh, for the Don Tidy Dorada Wood episode in December 83, uh, Eugene Medloin from the Sunday Independent is there, and two business people tell him on condition of anonymity that the reason they shut down their businesses in 81 and indeed put out the black flags was in- intimidation. Uh, a, a tourist bus, a, a bus uh, belong, uh, that was being used by British anglers who would come to Leitrim for uh, an angling holiday, it had been burned in the summer of 81, which was an awful blow to the local tourist economy. So by 1983, people in Ballinamore and elsewhere have learned to be careful and to uh, maybe to say nothing and keep saying it because there is that aura or atmosphere of sort of uh, menace or intimidation in the air. And as well then, Ronan, and, and you make reference to this, and I think this is poignant in, in a major way, there is a memorial for John Joe McGurl there uh, at which Jerry Adams spoke, I think, at the opening and... That sort of thing is as if McGurl was a, a, a major figure for the area or whatever. And there is no memorial there for the two young men who died in the service of the state. Absolutely. And this is this is one of the more motivating factors for writing the book. Um, the John Joe McGurl Memorial. First of all, we, we, we make it clear in the book that John Joe McGurl was central to the whole um, uh, kidnapping saga. But he is the principal reason why Don Tidy was taken to Leitrim and held for 23 days. So he was an accessory to kidnapping and also, uh, by degrees, an accessory to murder. And yet there's a memorial to him in Ballinamore and a bombastic large uh, memorial uh, on the way into the town, uh, which is put there in 1994, 11 years after um after that it was put there basically the money was raised by local republicans they never consulted the the people of the town they never asked the people of the town whether they wanted a memorial there i think they know they would have known what the answer would have been but they decided to put it up anyway and as a calculated insult to the views of the people of balnamore and of leitrim general who didn't support the provisional ira and i mean that's that's in the past but uh, there's an abomination at the moment as well that um the uh, the Balnamore Family Festival, and I put that in inverted commas, uh, hosts uh, John Joe McGurl Memorial Walk as part of the festival every year in August. It's incredible to think that anything that would call itself a family or community festival would host such an event. There should be no politics in any family festival. But I think there's a degree of intimidation Tommy, you'd agree with me, still there yeah. in Balnamore. And that's why people, even though they object to these kind of things privately, say nothing about them. Yeah, I mean, the, to go back to the monument briefly, Mick, I mean, um, uh, the local Repu- uh, John Jim McGurl died in 1988. In 1990, local Republicans submitted uh, a planning permission application. And that's 1990. So in the previous decade, as I outlined earlier, there's the burning of the bus, there's the closing of the businesses, there's the black flags. 
There's then uh, uh, um, uh, 1983 and uh, the Don Tidy and, uh, and the shooting dead of Kelly and Sheehan. And in the aftermath of that then, uh, famously, Brendan O'Brien from RTE uh, came down, p- compiled his famous uh, report on that whole tragic episode for Today Tonight. And uh, only one person, uh, a local solicitor by the name of Brian Toolan, uh, faced the camera and spoke the truth and said that the people of Balmore, 90% of them wanted nothing to do with subversion, terrorism, and they were on the side of the state. And But he was the only one. And a few days later then, every window in the solicitor's practice was smashed. And that's in uh, that's uh, early in 1984. 80, and then the planning permission goes in for the memorial in 1990. So everyone knows the, me- the, the, the vivid memories of what happened only within the previous decade. And I think, I think it goes to show you when you look at the kidnapping and the armed robberies that were going on and the smashing of the windows and the intimidation. I mean, you know, the provisional IRA supporters nowadays would have you believe they were engaged in this, this noble struggle against the British occupiers in the north when in fact they were engaged in a vast criminal conspiracy against the people of this island, North and South, nationalist and unionist, those who didn't support them. Yeah, and I have to say you, you make very plain in terms of the book and I, I, I noted that um, repeatedly you referred to the IRA as criminals and as a criminal organisation, which is something that... Um, they would obviously, <laughs> Sinn Féin people would obviously take issue with, and we also know that criminalising was the issue over the H-blocks and the hunger strikes, and they claimed they weren't criminals, but you've definitely pinned your colours to the mass there. What I would say, though, Ronan, I'd be interested in what you think it is, even in reference to David Kelly's confrontation uh, with Martin McGuinness, which was in 2011, 12 years ago, I sense, particularly with younger people, there is a re-evaluation of what went on and that the provosts are looked in a slightly more benign way due to the fact that people consider it all to have been history and all to have been part of a struggle going back decades and even centuries and what have you. Now, yourselves and myself are old enough to know that may not uh, hold water at all, but it's out there and I'd suggest it's pretty effective. It's very effective. I mean, I remember reading a survey. Um, there was a survey that the Sunday Times brought out uh, for the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement in which people under the age of 35 were asked various questions about the troubles. And uh, one of them was 37%, as I recall, of people under the age of 35 believed that the British Army killed more people in the troubles than anyone else. Whereas uh, I think the, the, the percentage was about 17% for Republican paramilitaries. Let's call a spade a spade here. The IRA killed 1,800 people during the Troubles. The British Army killed 300. That's six times as many people. I think the, I think the record has been uh, completely distorted. And the other thing about young people is that they, a majority of them only know of two events in the Troubles. One is Bloody Sunday. And the other is um, the hunger strikes. They don't know anything about Bloody Friday or Enniskillen or Le Mans or, Ennis, or, or Birmingham or Guildford or any of these other atrocities that were carried out by the provisional IRS. So there's been a pretty successful campaign on the part of some Republicans to um, to uh, uh, rewrite the troubles to give the impression that the provosts were the good guys. And as our book points out, they were not. 
Yeah, very much so it does. And now, uh, finally, just to t- touch on, um, was there, uh, here in this instance, as I understand it, their Green Booker reputedly says that they shouldn't take up arms against the Republic as it was the Southern State. They don't even recognise it as a Republic at the time, many of them. But here was an instance whereby they murdered two of them. They may claim it was in self-defence or whatever. But did did those killings have an impact on any support they may have subsequently enjoyed afterwards. Absolutely, it had a massive impact. Um, they hadn't much support anyway, Mick. I mean, Sinn Féin were uh, getting no more than 2% of the vote in the Irish general elections at that stage. So it gives you some indication of the level of support that there was for the provisional IRA uh, in the South. But uh, 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 an incident happened the day after Kelly and Sheehan was shot dead, which was the Harrods bomb, in which six people were out shopping, doing their Christmas shopping, were blown up by the provost. And that uh, those two events became sort of synonymous in the public minds with the depth of depravity that the provosts were ready to stoop to uh, in furtherance of their aims. And uh, there was a massive backlash against them as a result of this. I would say, when you look at those two incidents, it's probably only Enniskillen would have something uh, equivalent, right? So um, there was talk at the time of banning Sinn Féin, and in fact there was cross-party support from that. Fine Gael, Labour government, uh, would have done it. So would Fianna Fáil until it was realised that it would probably have been counterproductive. Um, but there was also the beginnings of what would become the Anglo-Irish Agreement uh, arose out of that because it brought home to Margaret Thatcher um, that the provisional IRA was an enemy of the Irish state as well and that unless the two governments cooperated properly together this, this issue wouldn't be dealt with properly. Yeah, and on that note, I remember in terms of the hard bomb, another book I was reading recently, um, Rory Carroll's Killing Thatcher made the point that the civilians who were murdered in Harrods, one of them happened to be an American, and that was all that really bothered the provost because they looked to America to get money. The fact that they'd blown people apart didn't seem to bother them at all. Uh, I have to say, I, I've read the book, Laz. I think it's a fascinating read. I think, beyond that, I think it's an important document because I think, as you pointed out, Ronan, people need to be um, reminded and in some cases educated on what actually went on so that people will remember properly and I would definitely say that, that this book goes towards that. The Kidnapping a Hostage, A Desperate Manhunt and a Bloody Rescue that Shocked Ireland written by Tommy Conlon and Ronan McGreevy. Tommy and Ronan, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you, Mick, very much. Great thanks to for talk to you. Mick. Also, like thank our engineer, as always, folks, and thank you for listening. We'll be back with you soon. Stay by the wall. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.